Chapter 3 of In the Oregon Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In the Oregon Country by George Palmer Putnam. The Land of Legends. The nomenclature of the Northwest suffered at the hands of its English-speaking discoverers, for much that was fair to the ear in the Indian names has been replaced with dreary commonplaces possessing neither beauty nor special fitness. Two Yankee sea captains tossed a coin to decide whether they would name the city Portland or Boston. The Boston skipper lost, and Maltnoma, which was the old Indian name for the place and means down the waters, became prosaic Portland, because some Methodist missionaries preferred a name with a biblical twang to the Indian Chemakeda, meaning the place of peace. Oregon's capital of today became Salem, and the title which the red men gave their council ground was abandoned. The Great River was first known as the Oregon. Just why, no authority seems to tell us reliably, but later became the Columbia when the ship of that name sailed across its bar. Jonathan Carver's choice of names, however, if no longer bestowed upon the river, soon became that of all its lower regions, and they acquired the lasting title of the Oregon Country. The old Oregon, the Columbia of today, was the gateway to the Pacific for the explorers and the immigrants of yesterday. For Lewis and Clark, it opened a friendly passageway through the mountain ranges, and likewise for the human stream of immigration which later followed its banks from the east. So is it, too, a modern portal of prosperity for Portland, as this greatest river of the west concentrates the tonnage of must of three vast states by water grades at Portland's door, and two transcontinental railroads follow its banks, draining the wealth of the Indian Empire while enriching it, just as the river itself physically drains and adds wealth to the territory it traverses. To us, the Columbia was a gateway to the hinterland, for our pilgrimage upon it was easterly, up into the land of sunshine beyond Mount Hood, and the Cascade Mountain Range starting on an impulse, after viewing the snow-covered barriers from the heights of Portland. And as we journeyed easterly up the Great River, whose water came from lakes of the Canadian Rockies, distant 1,400 miles, we found ourselves at once in a region of surpassing scenery and a land of quaint Indian legends. A great wall of mountains shuts off the coastal regions from eastern Oregon and Washington. The two divisions are as dissimilar in climate and vegetation as night and day. To the west is rain and lush growth, to the east drought and semi-arid desert. West of the Cascades are fir forests, cluttered with underbrush and soggy with springs, while east are dry pine lands, park-like in their open beauty. The high plains of the hinterland are yellow grain fields chiefly, and irrigation is the right hand of agriculture in the Willamette Valley. Nature brings forth all things in a revel of productivity. The Columbia cleaves this great wall asunder, breaking through the mountains in a gorge some 3,000 feet deep. Here was the mythical bridge of the gods, which legend narrates, once spanned the river from one mountainless bank to the other, until ultimately it fell and dammed the stream. You come upon the site of the legendary bridge where government locks now circumnavigate the Cascades, 
a fall in the river of wondrous beauty, hemmed in on north and south by timbered mountains. Sunken forests hereabout indicate that at one time the river's course was checked by some great dam or volcanic convulsion, and every evidence in the geological surroundings points to stupendous natural cataclysms which distorted the face of nature, leaving the sublime formations of the present. As the train or boat bound up the Columbia progresses through this weird portal, fortunate you are if told the myths of this region, which so truly is a land of legends, as we were of the mythical struggle between Mount Hood on the south and Mount Adams on the north, in whose progress Hood hurled a vast boulder at his adversary, which fell short of its intended mark, destroying the bridge of the quaint fire legend of the Clickitats, which later I chanced upon in print in Dr. Lyman's entertaining book, The Columbia River. A father and two sons came from the east, the land along the Columbia, and the boys quarreled over the division of their chosen acres. So to end the dispute, the father shot an arrow to the west and one to the north, bidding his sons make their homes where the arrows fell. From one son sprang the tribe of the Clickitats, while the other founded the nation of Multnomah. Then Sahel, the great spirit, erected the Cascade Range as a barrier wall between them to prevent possibility of friction. The remainder of Dr. Lyman's pretty myth is best told in his own words. But for convenience sake, Sahel had created the great Taminus Bridge, under which the waters of the Columbia flowed, and on this bridge he had stationed a witch woman called Lewitt, who was to take charge of the fire. This was the only fire of the world. As time passed on, Lewitt observed the deplorable condition of the Indians, destitute of fire, and the conveniences which it might bring. She therefore brought Sahel to allow her to bestow fire upon the Indians. Sahel, greatly pleased by the faithfulness and benevolence of Lewitt, finally granted her request. The lot of the Indians was wonderfully improved by the acquisition of fire. They began to make better lodges and clothes, and had a variety of food and implements, and in short were marvelously benefited by the bountiful gift. But Sahel, in order to show his appreciation of the care with which Lewitt had guarded the sacred fire, now determined to offer her any gift she might desire as a reward. Accordingly, in response to his offer, Lewitt asked that she be transformed into a young and beautiful girl. This was accordingly effected, and now, as you might have expected, all the Indian chiefs fell deeply in love with the guardian of the Taminus Bridge. Lewitt paid little heed to any of them, until finally there came two chiefs, one from the north called Clickitat, and one from the south called Wyeast. Lewitt was uncertain which of these two she most desired, and as a result a bitter strife arose between the two. This waxed hotter and hotter, until with the respective warriors they entered upon a desperate war. The land was ravaged until all their new comforts were marred, and misery and wretchedness ensued. Sahel repented that he had allowed Lewitt to bestow fire upon the Indians, and determined to undo all his work in so far as he could. Accordingly, he broke down the Taminus Bridge, which dammed up the river with an impassable reef, and put to death Lewitt, Clickitat, and Wyeast. But inasmuch as they had been noble and beautiful in life, he determined to give them a fitting commemoration after death. Therefore he reared over them as monuments the great snow peaks over Lewitt, what we now call Mount St. Helens, over Wyeast, the modern Mount Hood, and above Clickitat, the great dome, which we now call Mount Adams. Up through timbered hillsides from green fields, 
from the verdure of the western flanks of the Cascades winds a great river. The banks become steeper, the mountains behind them more rugged, fairy threads of silver, falling water, flutter down from cliffs, grotesque rocks, mighty monuments erected by a titan fire god when the world was young, rise sheer from the river's edge. Cumbersome fish wheels revolve sedately where the silver-sided salmon run in the springtime. The railroads cling close to the stream, perforce tunneling where nature has provided no passageway, and the boat plows against the current, which here and there is swift and circling as the cascades are approached. Then through the locks you go, or by them if you travel by the steel highways, and quickly the scenes change, these new ones painted in a vastly different vein from those that have gone before. The lofty, steep-walled hills become more gentle, and their cloak of green timber merges into brown grass. The river rolls between banks of barrenness as we emerge on the western rim of the land of little rain, for the moisture-laden clouds from the Pacific are thwarted in their eastern progress by the mountain barrier, along whose summits they cluster weeping in their baffled anger upon the wet westerly slopes, while the dry sunny eastland mocks their dour grayness. Close beside the river is the harshest of all this rainless land. Sand blows, the cliffs are bare and black, the hillsides bleak and brown, but ever so little away from the barren valley bottom are rich regions of orchards and green fields, and easterly in the countries of Walla Walla, Paulus, and John Day, far-reaching fields of grain abound. Farming is upon a bonanza basis, and the bigness of it all is reminiscent of the Dakotas, were it not for the majestic mountain skylines, blessed visual reliefs lacking altogether in the continental mid-regions. The volume, then, is bound misleadingly, and those who see naught but its unprepossessing exterior gain no inkling of its charming hidden chapters. Then come the Dallas of the Columbia, close to the town of the same name, where the river, a sane waterway for a half a thousand miles above, suddenly goes mad for a brief space of lawless waterfall and rock rim cascades. At Walla Walla, whose very name means where the waters meet, the two chief forks of the old Oregon River converge, the Columbia proper and the Snake, the one draining a northern empire, the other swinging southerly through Idaho, the gem of the mountains as the Indians baptized it. Thence the great stream flows westerly some 120 miles until it reaches the outlying ridge of the Cascade Chain, there encountering a huge low surface paved with glacier-polished sheets of basaltic rock. These plates, says Winthrop Parker, who saw them as a trail follower in the early 60s, gave the place the name Dallas, thanks to the Canadian voyagers in the Hudson Bay Service. A brief distance above this flinty pavement, the river is a mile wide, but where it forces tumultuous passageway through the rocks, it narrows to a mere rift compressed. If not subdued by the adamantine barriers, it cannot force asunder. Where the sides grow closest through three rough slits in the rocky floor, the white waters bore each chasm so narrow that a child could cast a stone across. On either hand are monotonous plains, gray with sagebrush and brown with sunburned grass. Rough hills rise northerly in Washington. Eastward roll lower, broadening lands, but turbulent with lesser hills. West is the great ridge of the Cascade Range, with hood rising majestic guardian over all, and the broad Columbia vanishing into the very heart of the shadowed mountains, unchecked on its seaward quest. The summer sunlight is blinding bright in the sky ethereal blue. An Indian hovel, or a ragged home of a fish spearer, beside the rushing waters, burnishes contrast, 
that of puny humanity in the face of nature at her mightiest. The view is at once compellingly beautiful and weirdly repelling. Few live along the great river or thereabout from choice, and yet the view of it, the startling, colorful panorama, is golden treasure beyond the dreams of avarice. It is this setting which marked the old-time entrance into central Oregon. Those words, old-time, are characteristics of the swift-moving country. For using them, I refer to but six years ago, when Oregon's hinterland was a wilderness so far as railroads were concerned. These Dallas of the Columbia, a milepost on the old transcontinental trail, are a place seen and passed today by those who rush on rails in brief hours where the pioneers of 50 years ago labored weeks. Also were these Dallas prominent in Indian life in the quiet mid-years of the last century when beavers were more plentiful than pale faces. Indeed, back to the very beginnings of northwestern Indian lore, their story goes, coming to us, like so much else of the misty past of the Oregon country, in a quaint legend. In the late 50s, Theodore Winthrop made his way cross-country from Port Townsend on Puget Sound to the Dallas on the Columbia. His book, The Canoe and the Saddle, describes that pioneer excursion through Indian land, traversing what was in reality an untrodden wilderness. Its charm of literary expression is in no whit less fascinating than the wealth of its adventurous material. But the two, like the writer, are far behind us, and all of the pleasant account I would refer to here is the last chapter, which concerns the arrival at the Dallas, then an outpost of civilization. Looking down upon the valley of the Dallas, Winthrop writes a half-century ago, Racked and battered crags stood disorderly over all that rough waste. There were no trees or any masses of vegetation to soften the severities of the landscape. All was harsh and desolate, even with the rich sun of an August afternoon doing what it might to empurple the scathed fronts of rock, to gild the ruinous piles with summer glories, and throw long shadows veiling dreariness. I looked upon the scene with the eyes of a sick and weary man, unable to give that steady thought to mastering its scope and detail, without which any attempt at artistic description becomes vague a generalization. My heart sank within me as the landscape compelled me to be gloomy like myself. It was not the first time I had perused the region under desolating auspices. In a log barrack I could just discern far beyond the river. I had that very summer suffered from a villain malady, the smallpox. And now, as then, nature harmonized discordantly with my feelings and even forced her nobler aspects to grow sternly ominous. Mount Hood, full before me across the valley, became a cruel reminder of the unattainable. It was brilliantly near, yet coldly far away, like some mocking bliss never to be mine, though it might insult me forever by its scornful presence. Evidently, it was while held captive by the villain malady that Winthrop learned from the Indians the legend of the Dallas, which he told so well that to paraphrase it would be folly. Here I give it as extracted from the thumb-mark little book whose publication date is 1863. The world has been long cycles in educating itself to be a fit abode for men. Man, for his part, has been long ages in growing upward through lower grades of being to become whatever he now may be. The globe was once nebulous, was chaotic and anarchic, and is at last somewhat cosmical. Formerly rude and convulsionary forces were actively at work to compel chaos into anarchy and anarchy into order. The mighty ministries of the elements warred with each other, each subduing and each subdued. There were earthquakes, deluges, primeval storms, and furious volcanic outbursts. In this passionate 
uncontrolled period of the world's history, man was a fiend, a highly uncivilized, cruel, passionate fiend. The Northwest was then one of the centers of volcanic action. Craters of the Cascades were fire breathers, fountains of liquid flame, catapults of red-hot stones. Day was lurid, night was ghastly with this terrible light. Men exposed to such dread influences could not be other than fiends, as they were, and they wore together cruelly as the elements were doing. Where the great plains of the upper Columbia now spread along the Umatilla in the lovely valley of the Grande Ronde, between the walls of the Grand Coulee was an enormous inland sea filling the vast interior of the continent and beating forever against the ramparts of hills to the east of the desolate plain of the Dallas. Every winter there were convulsions along the Cascades, and gushes of lava came from each fiery Tacoma to spread new desolation over desolation, pouring out a melted surface, which as it cooled in the summer, became a fresh layer of sheeny, fire-hardened Dallas. Now as the fiends of that epoch and region had giant power to harm each other, they must of, of course, giant weapons of defense. Their mightiest weapon of offense and defense was their tail. In this they resembled the iguodons and other mud pythons of that period. But no animal ever had such a force of tail as these terrible monster fiendmen who warred together all over the northwest. As ages went on, and the fires of the Cascades began to accomplish their duty of expanding the world, earthquakes and eruptions diminished in virulence. A winter came when there was none. By and by there was an interval of two years, then again of three years, without rumble or shock, without floods of fire or showers of red-hot stones. Earth seemed to be subsiding into an era of peace, but the fiends would not take the hint to be peaceful as they warred as furiously as ever. Doubtest in heart and tail of all the hostile tribes that scathed the region was a wise fiend, the devil. He had observed the cessation and convulsions of nature, and had begun to think out its lesson. It was a custom of the fiends, so soon as the Dallas Plain became agreeably cool after an eruption, to meet there every summer and have a grand tournament after their fashion. Then they feasted riotously and fought again until they were weary. Although the eruptions of the Tacomas had ceased now for three years, as each summer came round, this festival was renewed. The devil had absented himself from the last two, and when on the third summer, after his long retirement, he reappeared among his race on the field of tourney, he became an object of respectful attention. Every fiend knew that against his strength there was no defense. He could slay so long as the fit was on. Yet the idea of combined resistance to so dread a foe had never hatched itself in any fiendish head, and besides the devil, though he was feared, was not especially hated. He had never won the jealousy of his peers by rising above them in morality, so now as he approached with brave tail vibrating proudly, all admired and many feared him. The devil drew near and took the initiative in war by making a peace speech. Princes, continents, and powers of these infernal realms, said he, the eruptions and earthquakes are ceasing. The elements are settling into peacefulness. Can we not learn of them? Let us give up war and cannibalism and live in milder fiendishness and growing love. Then went up a howl from deviltry. He will lull us into crafty peace that he may kill and eat safely. Death, death to the traitor. And all the legions of fiends, acting with a rare unanimity, made straight at their intended reformer. The devil pursued a Fabian policy and took to its heels. If he could divide their forces, he could conquer in detail. Yet as he ran, his heart was heavy. He was bitterly grieved at this great failure, his first experience in the difficulties of reform. He flagged sadly as he sped over the Dallas, toward the defiles near the great inland sea, whose roaring waves he could hear beating against their bulwark. Could he but reach some craggy strait among the passes, he could take position and defy attack. But the foremost fiends were close upon him. Without stopping, he smote powerfully upon the rock with his tail. The pavement yielded to that titanic blow. A chasm opened and went riving up the valley. 
piercing through the bulwark hills. Down rushed the waters of the inland sea, churning boulders to dust along the narrow trough. The main body of the fiends shrunk back terror-stricken, but a battalion of the van sprang across and made one bound toward the heart-sick and fainting devil. He smote again with his tail, and more strongly. Another vaster cleft went up and down the valley, with an earthquake roar, and a vaster torrent swept along. Still the leading fiends were not appalled. They took the leap without craning. Many fell shorter were crowded into the roaring gulf, but enough were left, and those of the chiefest braves to martyr their chase in one instant if they overtook him. The devil had just enough time to tap once more, and with all the vigor of a despairing tail. He was safe, a third crevice, twice the width of the second, split the rocks. This way and that it went, wavering like lightning eastward and westward, riving a deeper cleft into the mountains that held back the inland sea, riving a vaster gorge through the majestic chain of the Cascades, and opening a way for the torrent to gush oceanward. It was a crack of doom for the fiends. A few essayed the leap. They fell far short of the stern edge, where the devil had sunk panting. They alighted on the water, but whirlpools tripped them up, tossed them, bowled them along among floating boulders, until the buffeted wretches were borne to the broader calms below where they sunk. Meanwhile, those who had not dared the final leap attempted a backward one, but wanting the impetus of pursuit and shuddering at the fate of their comrades, every one of them failed and fell short, and they too were swept away, horribly sprawling in the flood. As to the fiends who had stopped at the first crevice, they ran in a body down the river to look for the mangled remains of their brethren, and the undermined bank giving away under their weight. Every fiend of them was carried away and drowned. So perished the whole race of fiends. As to the devil, he had learnt a still deeper lesson. His tail also, the ensign of deviltry, was irredeemably dislocated by his life-saving blow. In fact, it had ceased to be any longer a needful weapon. Its antagonists were all gone. Never a tail remained to be brandished at it in deadly encounter. So after due repose, the devil sprang lightly across the chasms he had so successfully engineered and went home to rear his family thoughtfully. Every year he brought his own children down to the Dallas and told them the terrible history of his escape. The fires of the Cascades burned away, the inland sea was drained, and its bed became a fair prairie, and still the waters gushed along the narrow crevice he had opened. He had, in fact, been the instrument in changing a vast region from a barren sea into habitable land. One great trial, however, remained with him and made his life one of grave responsibility. All his children, born before the catastrophe, were cannibal, stiff-tailed fiends. After that great event, every newborn imp of his was like himself in character and person, but wore a flaccid tail, the last insignium of ignobility. Quarrels between these two factions embittered his days and impeded civilization. Still it did advance, and long before his death he saw the tales disappear forever. Such is the legend of the Dallas, a legend not without a moral. This is the end of chapter 3, a recording by Jason Fink.